stood not a man of all their enemies before them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. You may be seated. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. At our house, we have a tradition about this time of the year, this being Christmas time, you know, that at a certain time, we sit down in the living room, and it's always a loud and boisterous time, even more loud and boisterous than usual, I think, and we give each other gifts. Uh, The parents give the children gifts, and the siblings give each other gifts, and sometimes they even give their parents gifts. It's a time of of giving. It's a time of bestowing. And like you saw, the title for the message today is Joseph and the Bestowal. To bestow means to give. Uh, Dictionary.com would say to present as a gift, to give. And as we look at, well, let me just say that in this time of giving, which is not much different than what you do at your house, right? It sounds like John Pease used to do that, from what John Lewis said this morning. That giving, that bestowing that is done at times like that, it's not so much um, because the beneficiaries, it's not so much that the ones getting the gifts are that great or that worthy or that valuable, but it's because the benefactors, it's because of the benefactors, the people who are giving the gifts, their generosity and their love and maybe their riches. So especially at this time of the year, especially at Christmas time, we do and we want to thank God for bestowing such great love upon us as First John 1, 3 says. As First John 3, 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Thank God. I remember a number of years ago, Glenn Esch preached here one Sunday, and on that verse, First John 3, 1, and he used the term lavished. Behold what manner of love the Father hath lavished upon us. The NIV also renders that that way. What manner of love the Father hath lavished upon us. And to lavish means to occur in profusion, to give in great amounts, lavished. That's what God has done. We sometimes do that in our giving. God certainly has done and does that in his continual giving to us. We especially think of that and appreciate that here at Christmas time. As we think of the book of Joshua, we'd like to look at a large section here today, maybe the largest section of the book, chapters 13 through 21. And it deals with how God bestowed gifts to 
his people back then. It deals with how God lavished his goodness on the nation of Israel. He bestowed to them, well, let's see, what did he bestow to them? The verses that Nate read just a few, verses, a few minutes ago explains that. And the Lord gave, oh, that's bestowing, that's lavishing, isn't it? And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land. And they were able to live in it. And verse 44 says, the Lord gave them rest round about, rest from war. And he gave them victory, end of verse 44. And then verse 45 just kind of sums it up by saying that there wasn't a thing that God promised, but that it all came to pass. Joshua and his bestowal, or we could say Joshua and his bestowals. It was God that did the bestowing. Joshua and the nation of Israel were the beneficiaries. So, we've been thinking about Joshua in various sermons that I had here recently. I think this is the sixth one in the series. Joshua and his bestowal. Hopefully, the next time I get to preach here, um, we will end that series. I'm thinking about Joshua and his benediction from the last three chapters in the book of Joshua. Looking at the these chapters, verses, uh, chapters 13 through 21, and thinking about Joshua and the bestowals that God gave the nation of Israel. Let's look at three different sections. These chapters have to do with the dividing of the land, or the bestowing of the land, or the lavishing of the land. The Bible uses the term dividing the land, or then giving inheritance X number of times in these chapters. So the, let's think just a little bit more about how that that was done. The consigning of the various areas to the different tribes and to the different families within the tribes. Imagine with me if you can. Imagine with me if you will what it was must have been like for Joshua. What it must have been like for the nation of Israel to be being bestowed with the promised land, the land of milk and honey. Now, the last chapter of Joshua tells us that he got to be 110 years old. And chapter 13, verse 1, says that he was waxed. Let's see, how does it say there? Now Joshua was old and stricken in years. So let's just assume that maybe he was around 100 years old. And he might have been old and stricken in years for another 10 years. Let's just kind of assume that. Let's just say that if Joshua was, old, was 100 years old at this point. Think of his life up to this time. It was basically uh, in three sections of his life. The, um, the previous seven years had been years of fighting and battles. We know that was seven years because of what Caleb says in chapter 15. And then the 40 years before that had been the wandering in the wilderness through no, no fault of his own. He had also wandered in the wilderness with the faithless ch or with the children of Israel, uh, the 
children of the faithless generation. And so then that leaves 53 years that he would have been a slave in Egypt. 53 years as a slave, 40 years as a wanderer in the desert, and 7 years of fighting, of battles. Think of that. Uh, living in a hut along the Nile for a lot of years. Deserts, tents, travel, going from place to place just aimlessly like for 40 years. Living out of suitcases, def defensive battles, even in the years of wandering and offensive battles here in the last seven years. Are you kind of, do you kind of have a, a grip on that and what kind of life that must have been? Now, now God is fulfilling his promises and bestowing the land of Israel to, the, to Joshua and to the nation of Israel. Um, as I think of that, Joshua's life, the nation of Israel's life up to then, I think of some comparisons between that and people, slaves, who in the 1800s lived in the south and who would have escaped and headed by way of the Underground Railroad toward the North Star and to the land of the North Star and the many hardships that they experienced on the way and trying to avoid recapture. And finally they would get to Canada. A few of the fortunate ones did. And what a feeling of freedom that must have been. But when they got there, they really weren't bestowed with that awfully much, except their freedom. But that wasn't the case with Israel here. When they got to the promised land, things were all ready for them. And they were blessed with all kinds of blessings in the land. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 6, where Moses at the word of God, is talking to the children of Israel. This was a number of years earlier. And Moses tells them what it'll be like. As I think of this time of bestowing and of being given the land, I think, too, uh, another example is Wanda and I, almost 41 years ago, we were bestowed with a house to live in. After we got married, my parents were kind enough to give us this house that they owned and it was plenty ample for us. It was nice and large. It was sturdy and well built. My great grandfather had had it built a long time before and not only that but it was equipped. It had indoor plumbing. It had a heating system. It was everything that we need. Well maybe not everything because we have improved it quite a lot since that. But we were bestowed with that and the only problem that we had with it was that we had to somehow fight to come up with the rent that we needed to pay each month. My parents charged us $150 rent per month. So I, I think of that as I think of how Joshua and the nation of Israel must have felt this wonderful opportunity, this bestowing that the Lord had done for them. Now, Deuteronomy 6, God speaking here through 
Moses. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells digged which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. I just take notice of that word when there in the first line just a little bit. Now this time had come. Moses is saying when it happens, now, now here in Joshua 13 through 21 it has happened. And did you notice the word give? To give thee. A whole long list of stuff. He's bestowing this to them. He's lavish. God is lavishing these things. And I especially look at the phrase too. Houses full of all good, good things which thou fillest not. Can you imagine a, a wife um, coming into this house uh, that someone else had built. And it's all equipped and ready for them. And today's world we'd say... It, Probably had air conditioning and a microwave and and computer all ready to go for the children and, and houses of all good things which thou fill which thou fillest not. Those that's the kind of can you imagine how wonderful a life that must have been in those days when they got into the, finally when God bestowed on them the land of milk and honey, the promised land. And as we think of all that, we remember, don't we, that this is a picture of our life and our pilgrimage. Is this a picture of Canaan here, the land of Canaan? Is this a picture of the new birth or of heaven? And I just mention again that, yes, it is a picture of heaven in a sense, that after a long life as a pilgrim and a stranger and a slave... We get to the city of the mansions where everything is lovely and right and good. Yes, in one sense, it's a picture of heaven. Canaan, which the Israelites and Joshua experienced here, is a type of heaven, that celestial city, that the land of our dreams. But remember also that when they got to this Type, this Old Testament type of heaven that there were battles there and fighting there so that makes us think that there must be a further type as well and we think of that as the new birth the years of slavery and of wandering in the wilderness is a description of our life before Christ when we, before we had come to the Lord and were saved and were born again And certainly, this land of Canaan is a beautiful picture of coming and being born again where everything is made new. E.M. Bartlett, long time ago, I think back in the 1800s, penned a song that we still sometimes hear today. I think I remember... This first, when the uh, 
a, a quartet from Gap View or some uh, Gap View or some View years ago. Right now, I can't think of that quartet's name. But let's let me just read that song, "Camping in Canaan's Land." And again, we're thinking about how Canaan is a picture of our new life that we're experiencing in Christ. God has bestowed on us, by his love, salvation full and free. Here's the song. Here are the words. I have left the land of bondage with its earthly treasures. I've journeyed to a place where there is love on every hand. I've exchanged a land of heartaches for a land of pleasures. I'm camping. I'm camping in Canaan's happy land. Out of Egypt... No, every, out of Egypt I have traveled through the darkness, dreary, far over hills and valleys and across the desert sands. But I've landed safe at home where I shall not grow weary. I'm camping, I'm camping in Canaan's happy land. Every day, yes, I've reached the land of promise with its scenes of glory. My journey ended in a place so lovely and so grand. I've been led by Jesus to this blessed land of story. I'm camping. I'm camping in Canaan's happy land. Every day I'm camping in the land of Canaan's land. And with rapture I survey its wondrous beauties grand. Oh glory. Glory. Hallelujah. I have found the land of promise and I'm camping. I'm camping in Canaan's happy land. What a wonderful experience that is, camping in Canaan's happy land. And looking forward to that better Canaan, where we will really camp one of these days. Well, we've talked now about the first section, that of the consignment of and what that must have been like, the consignment of the land to the different tribes and the different families. Let's think just again about combat, just a little. First we talked about consignment, now we talk about combat or battles here in that happy land. How do you understand or how do you harmonize the last verse of Joshua 11... Joshua 11:23 So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord said unto Moses and Joshua gave it for an inheritance unto Israel according to their divisions by their tribes and the land rested from war how do you synchronize that with the first verse in 13 chapter 13 now Joshua was old and stricken in years, and the Lord said unto him, Thou art old and stricken in years, and there remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. How can that be? Well, I suggest, as do others, that the large and pivotal areas had been conquered by Israel's armies but there were still pockets of resistance here and there within the land of Israel so they had the whole area under control and yet there was a, a little enemy uh, village here and an ungodly um, gathering there and so on so they had the land, but there was still work to be done. There was still battles to be fought. There was still ungodliness and wickedness to be pushed out of that happy land. It was, 
I think uh, Joshua's strategy was a little bit like um, Douglas MacArthur's would have been in World War II. Remember how he, uh, especially he, employed that island hopping strategy of as they, as the Allies pushed west in the Pacific toward Japan, they would pick out some of the fortified areas on various islands in the Pacific that weren't quite as strong and overrun them and overtake that. And the more heavily heavily fortified islands, they would just kind of let those and and isolate them that way. They were able to advance much quicker that way with with less loss of life. Douglas MacArthur, who knows, maybe he got that idea from Joshua and his strategy here. Now, Joshua 6 through 12 details of many battles and military campaigns that, the, that Israel waged here at God's command. And the entire Israeli army was deployed for most of those in Joshua 6 through 12 which we talked about the last sermon that I preached here. So now with the major opposition is gone, God's plan was that the individuals and the individual families now that have been bestowed this land would fight and take care of these smaller pockets of opposition. That's what Caleb did in chapters 14 and 15. He was up to the challenge of taking care of these pockets of resistance that were within his bestowal. Others also had been given that responsibility, but they left that undone um, to their detriment and to their hurt, certainly. I notice how that God in Old Testament days often or sometimes enabled individuals to win major battles for God. Think with me about Samson who one day picked up a jawbone of an ass ass and killed 1,000 Philistines, Judges 15. I think of Samson and his armor bearer, just two individuals that cleaned out a whole garrison of Philistines, 1 Samuel 14. I think of Adino and Dodo and Abishai, 2 Samuel 23, and other valiant men there who single-handedly won battles for the Lord. In fact, it's said of Dodo there in 2 Samuel 23 that he fought until his hand was weary and his hand clave unto the sword. So he fought so long and so hard. He was so worn out that he couldn't loosen his fingers, but they just stayed around the sword handle when the battle was over. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound right? Um, don't we sometimes engage in, in group battles and sometimes the battles we face are very personal and very lonely and very individual? I, I thank the Lord for the privilege of fighting from victory ground together as a group. Um, 
couple weeks ago at church, we together fought in prayer for Melissa. Remember that lady that was in trouble uh, with the law in Iraq? And there was some uncertainty, but that she would have really uh, been in trouble with the law there. Well, we heard this week that she, the judge, threw out the case. And so we fought together, and today we thank the Lord together that that's the case for Melissa. That, not her real name, but the given name. And we fight battles together when we support our missionaries. And we fight battles when we support each other in the church. And there are also personal battles to fight and win. Not only group battles, but also personal battles. Um, young people, your battles could be against lust. Could be. Middle-aged people, it could be against envy. Older people here, it could be against greed. And your battles might be different than any of that. I thank the Lord that we're fighting from victory. And even when we, like Dodo, get so tired that our hand can't get loose of the sword, and even when, like Caleb, we're so old and gray-headed, or in some people's case, kind of bald-headed, that the victory is assured we're fighting from victory. I thank God for the... Victor, the victorious among us, the, victor, the victors here today, whether you're young or old, whether those victories are past, present, or future, whether you're male or female, whether you're one of those privileged ones, or whether you're less so. Thank God for victory in Jesus. Thank God for the victory that he bestows, as he did on the nation of Israel, so he does spiritually to us today. Thank God. Changing our focus just a little bit now, we've talked about the consignment of the land, we've talked about combat in the land. Let's look at a, a few individuals and make comparisons. Consignment, combat, comparisons. The first one that I'd like to look at here is found in Joshua 13.22. And when you get there, you will recognize this name and you will know about this man, Balaam, the son of Beor, the soothsayer, was put to death here by the children of Israel. Now, Balaam in New Testament terminology was unstable in all his ways. Because he was double-minded. James 1.8. I'm reminded of James 1.8. He was unstable because Balaam was double-minded kind of a person. He really wanted to do the bidding of the Lord. He really wanted to obey God. But he also, but he also, the New Testament says in 1 Peter, loved the wages of unrighteousness. And his physical end here is the same that those today who love the wages of unrighteousness will also experience in a spiritual and much more terrible way. Spiritual death. Balaam 
double-minded. He wanted to do what's right, but he also wanted to do what was wrong. Balaam, the person who didn't have the strength, and I could have said didn't have the grace, that wasn't right. That isn't right because God gives grace a plenty. Where grace abounded, sin did, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. For Balaam, victory was possible, except for his double-mindedness. He loved the wages of unrighteousness more than he loved the Lord. There's another man that's spoken about on, in my Bible. It's the very next page. Joshua 14. And this man is, well, and I'm especially looking at verse 8, was Caleb. In contrast to Balaam, who was double-minded, what was it about Caleb? Well, Joshua 14.8 says it clearly. He himself says it clearly. I wholly followed the Lord my God. What a contrast. What a comparison, but mostly a contrast between Balaam and between Caleb. It just seems to me that there's lots for me to learn about that contrast and those men that are highlighted here in this back corner of the Old Testament in the Bible. Balaam and Caleb. One was double-minded and one wholly followed the Lord. Does it strike you as being a little bit braggy that Caleb says that I have wholly followed the Lord? Well, if it does, you could look at Numbers 14.24 and you could look at Deuteronomy 1.36 and do look with me now at Joshua 14.9, the following verse, Joshua 14.9. And Moses had said that because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. So... Caleb wasn't bragging so much here as only repeating what God had said. In Numbers 14.24, Deuteronomy 1.36, both of those verses also said that Caleb was one who wholly followed the Lord. I am so impressed by that. Caleb got to camp in Canaan's land. And he's still camping in the real Canaan's land and he will yet forevermore because he wholly followed the Lord. And the challenge just comes ringing down to me here today. Am I a Balaam or am I a Caleb? Am I double-minded? Am I unstable in all my ways? Or am I one who wholly follows the Lord? God bestows his grace on those who wholly follow the Lord. Well, having thought about Balaam and Axa, uh, Balaam and Caleb, let's think now about Axa and the children of Joseph. And these two people or groups of people you might not be quite as familiar with as Balaam and Caleb. But Axa is spoken of in Joshua 15 verses 17 through 19, as well as in Judges, I think, where pretty much the same story is given. Axa is the daughter 
of Caleb. And she comes to him there. You're scanning those verses, aren't you? Joshua 15, 17 through 19. She was a bride. She had just married Othniel. And Caleb had given Othniel and Axa had bestowed some land upon them. He had given them a portion of land. And now Axa comes to him and lights off her, ca- lights off her ass, her donkey. And she had a question for him. She had a request for her dad, for Caleb. And I submit that she asked that very audaciously but respectfully. She did it with great boldness, but she did it very respectfully. She said, Dad, you gave me some land. Could I ask for more? Could I ask for, um, well, the land you gave me is kind of dry. Is there any way that you could give me a little bit more? Could you give me some water? Why do I say that she did it respectfully? Well, because she lighted off her ass. The Bible expressly bothers to tell us that. And maybe you're remembering how Rebecca had done that when she got into Isaac's sight years and generations before. And we're told that that is a sign of respect in the Middle East in the culture of that day. Getting off your mount and standing on the ground. A sign of respect. The NIV says of her request, give me a blessing. The NIV renders that something about, do me a special favor. Do me a special favor, Dad. Again, I see respect and courtesy and honor for her dad shining through there. And because of her courtesy... Not to mention maybe something else too. Because of her courtesy, she received, I suspect, more than she asked for or more than she expected because he gave her upper and lower springs. Upper and nether springs. He gave, she asked for some water and he gave her plenty. It was because of her courtesy and I think well, something else, and I, and I know about that something else somewhat because I live with five women in my house and they are all endowed with womanly charm, and I think that had something to do with it here too. But courtesy, and she asked audaciously, but respectfully. It reminds me of Hebrews 4.16, where God says, Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think AXA is a wonderful Old Testament picture of how to do that. To come boldly before the throne of grace. In contrast to her, look at the children of Joseph in Joshua 17. 14 to 18. And I read verse verse 14. And the children of Joseph spake unto Joshua, saying, Why hast thou given me but one lot and one portion to inherit, seeing I am a great people, forasmuch as the Lord hath blessed me hitherto? And I see here, I wonder if you see that. I wonder if I'm accurate. 
Is it just me that thinks that that request sounds kind of peevish? Do you know what peevish means? It means um, synonyms for peevish are fretful, discontent, annoyed, irritated. Do you see any of that shining through there? Why hast thou given me but one lot and one portion? And then their reply in verse 16 just makes me think that they were one of those that thought that they were a group that thought that they were so entitled. They were entitled to John Lewis' bigger and better presence like their siblings. The hill is not enough for us. Verse 16. And all the Canaanites that dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron. So what you offered isn't enough and what you really want us to do we can't do. We're just a bunch of victims. That's what it looks like to me. These children of Joseph. And I would say that one of the reasons that I think that all of that shines through is because we do know in different other scriptures how that the children of Ephraim especially were you could look in Judges 8 and again in Judges 12 to notice that the children of Ephraim were just kind of angry, proud, envious people. I kind of think that these people thought that they could manipulate their leader, manipulate Joseph, Joshua. But Joshua here shows great resolve and leadership in his reply to them. See, he was an Ephraimite. So they were talking to their own family here. He was the, the head of the nation of Israel and they were related to him. And I think they thought that they could get, um, get through to him and so that he would give them a little more. Don't you like the way that he throws that great term back to them? They say in verse 15, seeing I am a great people. And Joshua says and replies in verse 15, if thou be a great people, and twice in verse 17, thou art a great people and hast great power, so you probably can do what needs to be done. Why did he throw that back to them like he does? Well, I, I'm, 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 I think that it was to humble them just a little bit and also to motivate them. So, as we think about these two contrasts, comparisons, the third section here, remember Balaam and remember Caleb. Remember Aksa and remember the children of Joseph. I think they have a lot to teach us here in the 21st century, us Christians that are living in camping in Canaan's land. One more section of a subject that we find here in this section of Joshua, chapters 13 through 21, the bestowal of the land, and that is the coverts, as I've called it. So we've talked about consignment of the land, we've talked about combat, we've talked about a few comparisons. Now finally to talk about the coverts, which is a shelter or a hiding place, and maybe you're turning to Joshua 20, where the six cities of refuge are appointed or given. Cities of refuge. Do you know about the cities of refuge? There are six of them that the Lord 
bestows and lavishes on the nation of Israel and on to Joshua here in chapter 20. And those nine verses in that chapter all about the cities of refuge, the coverts that God provides for people in need of a covert. And a covert, of course, is a shelter or a hiding place. So these six cities that God appoints here were well spread out throughout the land. And there was three on the east side of the Jordan, upper, middle, and lower, and three on the west side of Jordan, upper, middle, and lower. And Canaan that time, at that time, I'm told, was about the size of Maryland, the state of Maryland. So one wouldn't have to go very far at all to be able to make it to one of these coverts, to one of these cities of refuge. And chapter 20 spells out what these cities are for. Uh, if you are in your work and accidentally somehow killed a person... Well, the avenger of that person, his relative, could kill you. You know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in Old Testament times. As we think about these coverts, these cities of refuge, I hope you're thinking about what do this represent? What do these cities of, cities of refuge have to do with us? What does it have to do with me? Hopefully you have that in the back of your mind. So, if that happened and I accidentally killed a person, I could quickly run to the cities of refuge and be safe. And you can read about that in chapter 20 of Joshua and other places in the Old Testament as well. Now, Jewish writings, not in the Bible now, but ancient Jewish writings, tell us more about these cities of refuge and what was provided in them. We're told that the roads leading to the cities of refuge, these six cities, were inspected and repaired every year after the spring rains or you know, after the winter had done its worst on the roads. Every year they would be repaired and it was important to the people of Israel that these, the roads leading to these cities were in good shape. And so, so the they were easy to travel and people could speed along on their way to the city of refuge. Also, it's said that there were signs posted at each crossroad in, in large letters saying refuge and pointing in the right direction. And in these six cities of refuge, the gates were never shut, the gates were never locked. Also, that in these six cities, cities of refuge, they kept a great store of provisions, of food. So, so there was not to be any lack of food in these cities. Can you imagine what it would have been like in that day if to accidentally maim somebody so much that he was that he would die, how that would change one's life. And John McDoug has written, and he wrote this in 1874. Imagine with me as I read what Mr. McDoug writes. It mattered not 
what his age or name or station in life was. He might be young or old, prince or noble, priest or prophet. He was exposed every moment to death unless he availed himself of the offered shelter. There was no time for delay. To linger might be to perish. Do you not think with pity of the unhappy fugitive obliged thus suddenly to leave his home and all that he loved most on earth. If at the time he caused the death he was working in his vineyard, the pruning hook must be left to rust on the branch. If he was plowing with his yoke of oxen, they must be left lowing in the furrow. If he was busied in his harvest field, the sheaves must be left unbound and the reapers receive their wages from another's hands. If he was returning home, fatigued at evening after the toils of the day and longing for grateful repose, he dare give no sleep to his eyes nor slumber to his eyelids he may have no time to change his clothing or take even his bag or pilgrim staff the avenger of blood may be in the adjoining street or in the dwelling nearby another hour may be fatal off he speeds in breathless haste now along the level road now up the steep ascent with his chest heaving and drops of perspiration standing on his brow friends may meet him but with a wave of the hand he rushes on with fleet footstep Parched with thirst in the hot noonday, he turns a longing eye on the ripe grapes that are hanging in purple clusters or on the water trickling down the narrow ravine, but he dare not pause. Knowing full well that the avenger is in close pursuit, he hurries on with unabated ardor. Happy sight when he sees at last on some mountain slope the longed-for city of refuge. Happy when weary and footstore, covered with dust, the portals of the city close him in. We can imagine the thoughts going through such a person's mind at such a time. The cities of refuge, the coverts that God provided, that was just another of his bestowal on the nation of Israel to provide grace for time of need like that. But what do these cities of refuge have to do with you and me today? I think you're thinking of that, that Jesus is our refuge. And a much better refuge than any of those cities are. Any of those cities were. Hebrews 16.18 Hebrews 6.18 says part of the verse, that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Jesus is our refuge. Jesus is our perfect refuge and forevermore refuge. Thank God for Jesus. And so I say that today and in this Christmas season, Thank God for his bestowals upon us. Not only upon the nation of Israel, back in the, na in the book of Joshua, back in that long ago day, but thank God for his bestowals, for bestowals with an S at the end, you know. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for his salvation. Thank God for the church. Thank God for his heaven. Thank God that he's coming soon. And you could add to that list. We could stay a long time and add to that list. Much more wonderful and much longer lasting than the bestowals in that day. 
Israel and Joshua are the bestowals that God in his grace and his love are, is bestowing and lavishing on us today. 1 John 3, 1. Let me just change one word in that verse. And right now I can't say it. Can somebody help me start it there? Um, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath lavished upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knoweth him not. Thank God for his bestowal. Thank God for his lavishing his love upon us here today. Would you kneel with me in prayer?